Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And we are live and in person, I believe for the first time ever, even though both Catherine and I live very technically in the same city of greater Los Angeles. We do not record in the same room. However, we had a movie to watch. We did, and so special times call for special (laughs) recording devices. (laughs) Or desperate times, as the case may be. And uh, yeah, so our desperate measure is that we have just watched Murder on the Orient Express. We are sitting in a car. You may be able to hear some cars zooming past us. That is not a special effect. It is not. As glorious as it sounds, we actually did not mean for those effects to be in the background here. But we just wanted to do a special little episode here to convey our thoughts about this movie, since we know so many of our listeners are watching it around the same time. So, Catherine, what did you think? You know, it wasn't as bad as I was expecting it to be. I would say it wasn't as bad as I was fearing it to be. That's fair. (laughs) We went in with relatively low expectations. So it could only really improve on those. And, you know, our biggest fear, which we've mentioned multiple times, was really the mustache of it all. Yes. Not even in the top five worst things about the movie. No, we both actually, and I'm shocked to say this, I think we both, we didn't grow to love the mustache, but we, by the end of the movie, were not all that... Distracted by it. Distracted by it, yeah. Right. So, and that's about as good as I think one can say about that mustache. Yeah, one can't say many other kind things about it, but <laughs> but not being distracted at the end of the movie is better than it expected. Yeah. Um, Should we let's start? Let's start with what we liked about it. Actually, just to start off on a positive note, because there was there was one thing about it I think we both really liked, and that was actually the end, the conclusion in which Poirot confronts this assembled cast of characters and essentially is trying to figure out what he's going to do. A change in this script, and I thought it was a smart change, is that he actually says, okay, you can all get away if you want, but you're going to have to kill me. And then he gives them a gun, and it's like a little test, and ultimately they don't shoot him. So that's kind of his way of proving to both them and himself that they're not actually killers, that this was a one-off. And that is different from the book, that is different from all of the movies. We can quibble about whether or not it's true to the book. But I liked it, and I thought it worked as a film adaptation, and it was exciting, and it was I think, sensible. I, to an extent, I think that it works mostly because uh, Michelle Pfeiffer is yes. the best person in the movie. Yeah. By a significant margin. Yeah. And so she sells... That Ms. moment. Yeah, she sells Mrs. Hubbard slash Linda Arden in that moment. And were it not for her performance, especially at the end of the movie, I don't think it would have worked at all. But I said to you, Kemper, that I actually think it might be my favorite Linda Arden. I think she's absolutely my favorite Linda Arden. The moment in which she pulls off the wig reminded me of Barbara Hershey in the mm-hmm. Suchet version, but it was more effective and her performance in which she's the one that points the gun at Poro and then is essentially ready to fall on the sword by shooting herself and the gun of course is empty. She sold it. And that you know, was it's much better than Lauren Bacall clinking champagne glasses in with, the seventies yeah, version. With which Jacqueline is, Bisset being yeah. like, Yay, we're happy now. Yeah. 
she sold being a broken person and feeling like she was at the end of her life. And that was very true to the book, too, because in the book, Linda Arden really does take center stage at that moment. And that's never really happened. I guess you could say in the Barbara Hershey Suchet version, it sort of does. But it, it was really effective here. And it felt like they... Once the mask or wig, as it were, had been pulled off, they could really use Michelle Pfeiffer to the fullest extent, and they did. So that was good. Yeah, and so we we, uh, were both agreed upon that. There were a number of things that we were less pleased about. Well, let's talk about another actor who was used to his fullest extent, and we were a little a little baffled uh, yeah, by this. Yeah, we were, I think, most off-put by the fact that uh, Josh Gad turns out to be the star of this adaptation for reasons unknown to us, especially because McQueen is in no way a main character of this story, and the decision to amplify his screen time that much was baffling. Yeah, it made no sense that McQueen was given as much screen time as he was since the character and the character's function within the original is, it's, he's important but he's not central, it's not like it's hard to minimize him and he was not minimized, he was brought out in a way that baffled me because Judy Dench, for example, is hardly in the movie, and her character in every other adaptation is used quite amply. Why were they not using Judy Dench? Right, we couldn't figure that out because, you know, we think we've said this before, but the really main characters in the book are Mary Debenham and Princess Dragomiroff. And Linda Arden. Right, but not really, she's not doesn't pull into focus until the end of until the book. The end. Sure, sure. So, it was a really odd choice especially because you look at other actors like Olivia Coleman, who we love Olivia Coleman has virtually no lines and the lines she has are in German Right. I think the adaptation choices were really odd yeah, it's hard when you have that big a cast of characters to give everyone their screen time and to give everyone their due, but it just felt so lopsided. And with Josh Gad, and not to say anything bad about Josh Gad, and he was perfectly fine in the performance. It's not we that he was bad. We all love Olaf the Snowman. We love Olaf the Snowman. It just felt lopsided, and, and that was puzzling given you know how many other actors there were who weren't being used as much. Penelope Cruz also, she shone in the moments that she was given, or she was at least very noticeable in the moments that she yeah, was given, she which was on screen very often. No, and especially if you compare her to Ingrid Bergman in the 70s version. I think Ingrid Bergman's the most memorable part of the 70s version. Yeah. She took a completely different direction, and I don't blame Penelope Cruz for doing that. If if it looked like she was copying Ingrid Bergman, that would not have worked, so I think that's the only thing she could have done, but it still was not as effective. Other nits to pick were the numerous additional action sequences, which I think were unexpected, to say the least. I I felt at times as if what they were trying to do in this movie was to make it the Agatha Christie version of Robert Downey Jr.'s Sherlock Holmes. So still somewhat faithful to source material. And to be fair, this movie is much more faithful to its source material than those movies. But having a kind of action-y popcorn spin to it that would appeal to a broader audience. Let's just say that this version of Poirot is... 
shockingly adept at using his uh, cane slash walking stick mm-hmm. really numerous times. It was the it was like the Kingsman version of Poirot. Right, or the Avengers, not uh not the Marvel right. uh, Avengers, but the Diana, Diana Rigg. Rigg. Avengers, absolutely. I can understand them doing that. I don't love it as an Agatha Christie purist, or not even Agatha Christie purist, but just as a fan of the books. I didn't like the action sequences, but they don't they don't necessarily make me angry. Here is an addition that did make me angry because it was I just thought plain bad, and I honestly don't understand why it's in there. The weird Poirot lost love backstory. As much as Catherine got a kick out of Kenneth Branagh's Poirot murmuring, oh, Catherine. Over and over again. Over and over. And that was it. There, We never learned anything more about that. We saw a pretty lady in a black and white photo. We right. know her name is Catherine. And that's it. Right. Couldn't they at least have him say, oh, Vera. Right. Right? Like, at couldn't her name have been at Vera? At would have been canon to some extent. Why did it have to be Catherine? Are you sure you weren't a script consultant? It's totally possible. That was your one note. Yeah, my one note was I just wanted Kenneth Branagh to murmur Catherine as Poirot. Um, I actually think it's going to live haunting my nightmares. (laughs) So, yeah, a bizarre, bizarre change. I don't know if... It added nothing to his character. It was such a classic throw in a backstory because people feel that you have to have one. And if you don't have one, it's not a real character. But if anything, it made him feel less real. It took away from any complexity. It was just terrible. Yeah, not a fan. Um, I have to also say that I felt... Very negatively about the beginning of the movie. I looked at Kemper and was sort of like, oh no, what are we in for? Well, the beginning, you know, is this jaunty Poirot solving a a theft. At the Wailing Wall. At the Wailing Wall. And it's not as bad as this, but I was actually worried, is this going to be along the lines of the Alfred Molina 2001 version? Because that one starts out even much more cheesily and with way less production value, obviously. But, you know, he's in this nightclub and he's solving. Uh, and it's a little similar the it way that they, similar. that they play out. U- ultimately, this movie is a lot better than the 2001 version. That's for sure. That's but not saying a whole lot. No, um, it's not but, saying anything, but really. But we don't think this is bad. There are just a number of things that we could have done without. Another thing that we talked about is they basically get rid of the clues. Yeah. There aren't, there just are not, there are not that many clues that we're given and that Poirot is given that gets him to the point of suspecting each of these individuals. He kind of just begins to suspect them once he learns that, oh, this is about Daisy Armstrong. There are a couple, and we have some of those physical clues that are in the book, but it just never really comes together, and it doesn't really seem to matter. And the one thing I will say in favor of that decision is that I do think, for the most part, this movie was better paced, or at least faster paced, than, dare I say, the 1974 Sidney Lumet version, which really is a slog to get through, especially on a second viewing. I I felt that this one, other than there was a moment that dipped with Johnny Depp as Ratchet trying to hire Poirot in the first third, that went on way too long, but otherwise, it it chugged along pretty well. And I think it's because they just kind of dispensed with the clues. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I would say that in the 1970s version, I actually think it gets off to such a much stronger start that I can tolerate the slog a little bit better. Sure. This um, does not get off to a good start. And so when it does pick up steam, for me, it felt a little late. 
my attention was a little spent at that point. There are also a lot of weird directing choices from a shot selection standpoint, I would say, Mm -hmm. uh, many of which are distracting. The most egregious one, I think, is that overhead shot as we're watching Poirot and Monsieur Bouc, the the very young and rakish Monsieur Bouc in in this version. I didn't mind that choice, actually. I didn't mind it either. He was Yeah. He was fun. When they are discovering the body, and we don't even yet see the body, and basically I'm staring at the part in Kenneth Branagh's hair for about five minutes, and I can't see his face, and I can just hear them talking, and it was really weird, and I don't know why that decision was made. I think they make it so that when they eventually they go into Ratchet's room. The shock of seeing the body. Yeah, except for the fact that you've been waiting. He's been dead for some time. Yeah, we don't get to see Johnny Depp's dead body for a really long time. I have to say, I was fine with less Johnny Depp screen time, dead body or not. Sure, sure. But, you know, it was just a really weird delay. Not that he was bad. And by the way, I mean, I think we can say no one is bad. No one's performance is bad in this movie, including Kenneth Branagh's. No. The worst thing that you could say about Kenneth Branagh's performance is that it was a little bit negligible. Sure. Or just, or not as, not as memorable as certainly Albert Finney. Well. If you like it or not, yeah. it, it is certainly memorable. And then Suchet, of course, is just his own animal since that's, that's just within the world that he created. And we will Poirot. choose not to speak Again, of Alfred, Alfred Molina. Molina. Yeah, yeah. There was one other thing I thought was curious and, and that I didn't love, and it's a writing note. There were a lot of quippy moments where someone would say something cute that was meant to get a little laugh. We're watching this a number of days out from the opening, so it wasn't a particularly full theater, and a lot of those moments were not filled with laughter. <laughs> and it's not that they weren't necessarily funny, and with a full theater, they probably would have at least gotten some titters, but it felt... It certainly didn't feel true to the spirit of the novel or of the way there's, or of Christie's storytelling. Right. And you there's I mean? there's also a really weird running thread in it about racism. And it's brought up multiple yeah. times. And then it's I didn't mind that. Well, that felt like because this is a movie produced in 2017, which right? No, I I agree with that, but they but they apologize for them at the end instead of like letting yeah. the characters remain racist. Right. Everybody's like, oh no no no, that was just part of our right cover. Like Willem Dafoe when he comes clean as being Cyrus Hardman, the Pinkerton detective, is like, by the way, I'm really sorry I had to say that racist stuff. Yeah, I'm not really a I'm racist. I'm not really a racist. <laughs> I mean, it's 1934 and I probably really am a racist, but I'm not a racist. 2017 audience, you can still like me. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it was the weird apologizing that yeah. really felt out of place. Yeah, fair enough. I was not enamored with the CGI at various points, yeah. either. Yeah, there were a lot of moments where I was like, that's fake. That Like, the beat, the opening by the Wailing Wall had a lot of fake-feeling moments, and some of the overhead exterior shots of the mountains as the train was going through were supposed to be breathtaking, but I just kept on thinking, that's fake. It was a little, at various points, like Polar Express, mm-hmm. sort of like a slight Uncanny Valley sense. Yeah. Oh, and that's the, the other directing choice we were, we were talking about was that long-tracking shot as Poirot is entering the train and for at least part of it Linda Arden Michelle Pfeiffer is talking to him and 
tracking shots, I think, need to have some purpose in a movie other than, hey, isn't this cool that I haven't cut yet? And to me, it felt like a, hey, isn't this cool that I haven't cut yet? Aren't I doing a really good job right now? Right. And also, like, here's a tour of this train car that we built, and it's all fancy. And, like, look at all these Godiva labels on every <laughs> single table right. in the entire car. I mean, hey. And it was, the set design was great. I mean, they, they if this movie was very pretty to look at. Yeah, for the most part. Other than the CGI. Other than the CGI, for the most part, it was. I mean, the only other really off choice is what they did with the Count and Countess Andrenyi, which was, I just think, really off base. Yeah, the only way I think that it makes sense is that Countess Andrenyi being the sister of the Armstrongs, you know, sister slash Anna of the Armstrongs, was so damaged by what happened that she gravitated toward an equally damaged partner because he's this like dancer who's really violent. Yeah, like like a kickboxing y like I mean he slams the head of a people. photographer in the opening. But we it seems that we are we are supposed to assume that he is never violent toward his wife. Right. She also just being as drug addled as she was when she's being interviewed, it's an odd scene because she's just so out of it. And Well, and also uh, at the end of the movie, they dump all the barbital down the sink. And I was a little bit like, sister's going to go cold turkey on a train. <laughs> That's probably not going to be That's so good. That's the sequel. She's just like <laughs> raging through the Orient Express. <laughs> I mean, they, they have a pretty long way still to go on that train. And like, yeah, didn't seem like the best decision. But all in all, an enjoyable. Can we should would we say it was enjoyable? It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm happy that I just saw that adaptation of Murder on the Orient Express. I'm, I'm happy to do this, and I'm happy that it's doing well. All right. Well, on that resounding note of of excitement, <laughs> those are just some off the cuff thoughts about Murder on the Orient Express. We would love to hear from all of you what you think about the movie. So email us allaboutthedame at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at allaboutthedame or on our Facebook page at allaboutagatha. Catherine loves to tweet with people at Brobcat. And we also do have an Instagram account, so please feel free to join it. And that is also at allaboutagatha. And take a moment to rate and review us and we will talk to you very soon. Bye. Bye.